Again, good morning, and great to see you, great to have you here. And if you and I haven't met, my name is Brian Haybig, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Jonathan Davis leading us in worship. If you, if you are new around here, just to let you know how we normally do things, we like during the, the preaching time to work through a book of the Bible normally, or maybe a section of the Bible, and we're doing what we usually do during Advent, taking a break from that. We are on a theme, you might say, of the, the incarnation. That's just the theological word for what we celebrate at Christmas, and that is that God became man. God took on flesh. He was incarnated. And uh, God the Son had always been God, and He remained God, but He took on humanity for us. We just sang about it, and we'll be celebrating that. So I wanted to look at some passages, Old and New Testament, to help us think about that. And this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49, fairly short passage, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin, Isaiah chapter 49, the first six verses. This weekend on Facebook, a couple friend of uh, mine and Dana's mentioned that they were celebrating their anniversary, and this was a couple, I knew the husband When he was a college student, I was his campus minister and actually got to do their wedding and kind of couldn't believe it when they said they'd been married 17 years, how much time had gone by. But I remember he told me the story of when he proposed to his then-girlfriend. It was in Memphis, and if memory serves me correctly, I didn't want to call him in the wee hours to fact-check on this this morning before the sermon, but if memory serves me correctly, I think he proposed to her on the roof of the Peabody Hotel in Memphis. That's like the historic hotel downtown where the ducks come down the elevator and all this great stuff. But anyway, proposed to her on the roof and she said yes. And he told me that when she said yes, he just went, woo! And there were other people around and she went, shh. And he said, what do you mean, shh? And I thought, that, man, now that's what we want right there. That's, that's, that's what we want the groom to be, to sound like, that I, I, can't, I can't contain myself. And I thought about that story going into this passage and looking at some similar passages, I'm going to refer to those in a second, in, in Isaiah. You know, this is from the Old Testament. And when you hear Jesus or the apostles refer to the law and the prophets, there were quite a few prophets, but Isaiah would be right there in the wheelhouse of the prophets. Long, 66 chapters. It's quoted a bunch in the New Testament. But uh, there are times, really in the whole of the Bible, but there are times in Isaiah where God is saying something, or, uh, or someone is saying something on God's behalf, and will essentially say, I, I am full of zeal about this. I'm excited about this. There's actually a famous one that you've heard before. You know, and, and we quote it around this time of year. Earlier in Isaiah, there's the passage about, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know, this is sung in the Handel's Messiah. And his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then just a few verses later, it says, The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. It's as if God is is not just saying, Here's what I'm going to do, but I can hardly contain myself. His excitement is spilling over. This passage starts with the speaker saying, I want Every nation and even remote islands, even the little island that no one knows about yet in the South Pacific, I want everybody to listen to what I'm about to say. Which is interesting because when you think of a prophet 
You typically think of somebody who's sent by God to talk to Israel, to talk to God's people. And the speaker here is saying, I want everybody in the world, everywhere, to hear what I'm about to say. Now, let me say one more thing about this passage, and then I want to read it. This is the second of four songs that show up in Isaiah. And and these songs have been head-scratchers for Jewish interpreters and Christian interpreters. They're called the servant songs. Uh, this is the second one. Uh, there's one in chapter 42. There's one in chapter 50. There's one in starts in 52 and goes into 53. But they describe this, this servant. And it's hard to tell, is this an individual? Or is this the whole nation of Israel? But this servant is sent by God to do particular things. And God gets very excited about it. So let's listen to what he says. Uh, For most of this passage, it's the servant doing the talking, telling you about himself and God. Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says... He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, Sunday after Sunday, we gather here in Your Son's name and we, we ask You for things. We ask You for things for the world and our nations, uh, our nation and other nations. We ask for things for ourselves. And, and we're asking You again to help us The things we need to see, they're right there. But we're distracted, or we're bored, or we're cynical, or we're hurting. And so we don't see them. And we pray that you, as the great lover of our souls, would break through and let us hear you and see you. And even understand ourselves better. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You remember, just a few months ago, in September, Hurricane Maria came raging through the, uh, the Caribbean and did massive amounts of damage in Puerto Rico and, uh, to the point where it was even hard to know what was happening because so, so much of the uh, infrastructure and power and phones and all that got just decimated. Five days after Hurricane Maria, a chef from the United States headed there. And he's a man named Jose Andres, Spanish-born, but sort of 
made a name for himself, built a restaurant empire in the United States. And I remember seeing a piece about him on 60 Minutes several years ago, just about his, his love of food, his wonder with food. He does this sort of, I can't remember the technical term, like gastro-experimentation. And he's, he's so amazing and so inventive, and he just has such delight in it. And his restaurants have been so successful, he'll actually shut them for part of the year just to experiment, just to see what, what food can do, and then come back with his new ideas. But an accomplished chef, uh, two Michelin stars. Well, he hears about the plight of Puerto Rico, and he heads down, from what I understand, with no plan. And I, I don't know how you would have formed a plan because it was so hard to communicate with Puerto Rico. And he gets down there, and he ends up setting up a network of 20 kitchens. And as of the last reporting, he had fed 3 million people. And it's probably approaching 4 million people by now that he just put together. And, and he has completely outpaced the, the aid agencies that were already in place. He just went down there and started networking and resourcing and feeding people. Now, we love stories like that. And I love stories like that. I just typically don't want to be that guy. Uh, in the sense, well, I have, I've committed myself to not cooking is one way. Um, I'm not, not being that person. But, 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 but I mean, you know, when, when resources are, are threatened, I, I tend to be protective of my resources. You know, I remember our first December in Greenville was in 2005, and we got welcomed to our first Greenville winter with uh, one, of, one of the Greenville ice storms. And our power was out for almost a whole week. And when it came back on, and man, that sound when your power comes back on, it goes, vroom, is delicious. <laughs> so when we heard that sound and it came back on, uh, I mean, we had been the, the you know, we had been the, the blights on other people's homes and staying in their house and leeches in their, in their lives. And then when our power back came on, I really did not want to invite anybody who didn't have power at that point. I just wanted to enjoy it. So that's, that's bad news about people like me. And uh, the good news is that God is not like that. God is not like that. And when there was only God, and that's, that's, a, that's a reality that Scripture only gives us just the barest little hints about. But when there were no molecules, there, there, there was no matter. When all there was was God. And He had perfect connection and bliss and mutual enjoyment and delight and reverence and honor and joy within himself with no needs and no deficiencies, no insecurities, no gaps. He spoke the cosmos into existence and spoke every creature into existence and then crafted the creature of all creatures, human beings that make his image And he makes them, in particular, to be brought into this community of love and delight and joy when he didn't have to. He just did it. And this passage echoes that. Like That song is still echoing after Genesis 1, even into Isaiah and on and on and on. So let's look at this. And uh, and let's think about this this servant, this kind of mysterious servant. and what he does, sent by this loving God. So here's, here's the points I want to develop. The mystery of the servant, the master of the servant, 
and the mission of the servant. And it's maybe once every two years that I alliterate every point. So please write this down somewhere. The mystery of the servant, the master of the servant, and the mission of the servant. Okay, first off, what's the mystery of the servant? The mystery is that, like, like I said earlier, both Jewish interpreters, Jewish eyes have looked at these songs. Christian interpreters and eyes have looked at these songs. And there hasn't been this just uniform consensus about who it's talking about. So what, what have been some of the options that people have thrown out? Now, one big one is that when God says, my servant, he's talking about the nation of Israel. Because look at, look at what he says in the passage. Uh, verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, comma, Israel, comma, in whom I will be glorified. And I put another passage after our passage in italics. You see there under our passage, this is from earlier in Isaiah. Listen to the language. But as for you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, my chosen one, descended from Abraham, my friend. Okay, couldn't be clearer. I have called you back from the ends of the earth, saying, you are my servant. So it kind of sounds like, oh, that's a slam dunk. The servant is the nation of Israel. But there's some problems with that. And, and, And this is why this has been a head scratcher. Number one, you've got two verses in our passage that say that the servant is formed in the womb. It's the language of a real human being, of an individual. And the other problem is this, is that when you look at these four servant songs, the servant comes to fix what is wrong with Israel. And when the prophecy of Isaiah comes to Israel, Israel is in horrible shape. He's talking about idolatry. He's talking about their neglect of the poor. They don't do justice. They don't love mercy. They're the haves and the have-nots. There's crummy worship. They're not in good shape. They can't be the ones who fix their own problem. So that doesn't seem to work, okay? So, all right, if it's an individual, what if the individual is Isaiah? And look, look at this second little quote in italics. I didn't give much just because I just wanted to make this one point. Earlier in Isaiah, God is talking to Isaiah, and he says, Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has done such and such, he refers to the prophet as his servant. But now what's the problem? Well, if you look at these songs about the servants, especially when you get to the fourth one, God is really clear about the fact that my servant is going to bear everything that's wrong with my people. Bear my people's sins, uncleanness, idolatry, and take away my people's sin forever. Well, Isaiah can't do that. Because you know what? Earlier in the book of Isaiah, he lets us see him talking about his own sin. There's this famous passage earlier in Isaiah where he sees a vision of God on his throne. The Lord on his throne. Angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. That's where the hymn comes from. Is the Lord God Almighty. And it's so frightening to Isaiah that he says, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips i.e. other Israelites, I'm undone. He can't be the one who bears sin. He's contributing the sin. Okay, so I know what you're already thinking. I know what y'all are thinking. You're already thinking, we know it's Jesus. 
All your sermons are about Jesus. I know that you kind of had to create this sort of, you know, like it's up in the air. We don't know, but we know that it's Jesus. And you know what? You're almost completely correct. You made a 98. But I'm going to tell you why you didn't make a 100 in a little bit. But you're right. It is primarily fulfilled, we believe, in the way it's used in the New Testament. By the coming of one who is what Israel should have been. In fact, that's really how God can call this servant Israel. He's what Israel should have been. He's what a true Israelite would have looked like. And really, what an airtight human being looked like. So much so that God can just call him Israel, my servant. It's primarily fulfilled in Jesus. Now, we're getting it, okay, unraveling the mystery. What about the master of the servant? You know, when you have a servant... You have a master, and if we believe this is fulfilled in Jesus, let's stop and think about the way this passage in Isaiah reads. The servant doesn't call the Lord, you know, Yahweh. When you see Lord in all caps, God's personal name, Yahweh. The servant doesn't call Yahweh uh, Father. He refers to him as the Lord, Yahweh, like his master, and he's his servant. What does the master do for the servant? Well, a couple of things. Number one, the servant says, he prepares me. He prepares me. Like, he he formed me in the womb. Very thing that we're celebrating, hopefully all the time, but especially at this time of year. He, He names me. And this one's really cool. It says, he names my name. Not an earthly dad, but Yahweh names my name. And if I can be teachy for a second... Look in verse 6. God says, all right, what what are you going to do, servant? And he says, I'm going to make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The word that we translate salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua. That was Jesus' name. We say Jesus. Greeks would have said Iesus. But if you had audio of Mary calling Jesus' name or Joseph calling his son's name, he would say Yeshua. Yahweh forms me, names me, calls me. Calls me to the thing that I'm going to do and I answer His call. So first He he prepares me. And then what? He sends me. Look at the metaphor that the servant uses in verse 2. This is very Old Testament prophet sounding language. Verse 2. He, God... He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In His quiver, He hid me away. Now think about, think about that metaphor. That I, my mouth is sword, I am arrow. When do you use a sword and when do you use bow and arrow? You use a sword up close. And you use an arrow for distance. And he says, I will be both sent by Yahweh. Uh, Up close and personal, my words will be a sword in all kinds of ways. And boy, the New Testament takes that exact language and echoes it in the book of Revelation. The sword of my mouth may cut you up like a sacrifice. 
It'll divide your, your bones and your sinew and your ligaments so that you can be presented to Yahweh as a living sacrifice. My word might do that, or the sword of my mouth will slay the wicked. But I'm also an arrow that he takes and he shoots. Uh, there, there's a verse in the New Testament. Paul says in, a, in the letter of the Galatians, and this sounds like a Christmas passage before there was a Christmas celebration. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God sent forth His Son born of a woman. And it says He hid me. You know, uh, for 30 years there's this man living what seems to be a normal Jewish peasant life in Galilee and he does in, in other words when Jesus went public as the Messiah everybody in the crowd didn't go knew it could have told you that saw it coming the whole time everybody was shocked is this not Joseph's son is this not Mary's son who does he think he is he was hidden for those 30 years but that's not the great hiding what is the great hiding is that all this time the world you know like like uh, in sin and error pining All this sin, all this need, all this need for redemption, and God hides him. He hides him, he hides him, until the fullness of time comes, and Yahweh sends the servant. Now, before we get to what he did, I I want to pause there, that the master of the servant sent the servant. And the reason I want to pause there is that I think it's safe to say that Christians like and Christian teachers like me, sometimes we send a signal that we don't mean to send. And it is that, you know, like God the Father is really holy. And He really hates sin. He's holy, holy, holy. But then you've got Jesus who's loving. And boy, He comes to earth and He lays down His life and He loves people that turn on Him. And you can go to Jesus because He loves sinners. And we can almost send the signal that, wow, Jesus is where you find the love and boy, you better be protected from the Father's holiness. Who sent the servant? The Father. The Father sent him. Who shot the arrow? The Father did. Let's go back to Jose Andres. What if, hypothetically, Jose Andres went down there and for some reason knew that Puerto Rico collectively hated him? And so what if he goes down there and he's just giving himself to serving and feeding and facilitating, but all the time there's pushback and resistance? What if he decided, I need to get my son down here to help me? But what if he knew, this situation is so different, is so, is so um, dangerous that they might kill my son. What if he brought his son down and people in Puerto Rico killed his son and he continued to feed and to facilitate and to serve? What if that happened? then that would be a pale reflection of God. This is God's earth. We are the sinners. We are the rebels. God was never over a barrel to redeem or cleanse or pursue us. And He does. And He sends His Son for the rebels. He sends His Son for the bad people. Why does God want the bad people to be reconciled to Him? Why does He pursue them? Why does He want a relationship with them? We don't know. 
The scriptures don't say why he does it. Except this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Do you believe that God loves you? That God loves you and wants you to be reconciled to him, to know him, to be close to him, to be loved by him. And for the people around you to know Him too because He loves them too. Do you believe that God loves you and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers? Because He sent the servant for us. And the servant said, I'll go. So what's the, what's the mission of the servant? Twofold, look in verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord, Yahweh, says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So, first, the servant, i.e. the Messiah, is to bring Israel back. And again, the prophecy of Isaiah is written during a crummy time in Israel's history. Idol worship, injustice, violence, apathy, haves and have-nots. And God says, I want you to be brought back. I'm not going to say, you know what? You've been idiots. I sent you judges, I sent you kings, I sent you prior prophets. You deserve what you get, and I'm cutting you loose. He says, I want you to be brought back. Who is the gospel for first? What does the New Testament say? First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Jesus is sent to the lost house of Israel. But then what else does God say? And this is great. This is even though the servant doesn't call him father or dad, this is where almost the dad tone comes through. Almost the dad voice comes through. Verse 6. He, God, says to the servant, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He's not saying you're not going to do that. But it's just... If I'm going to send you, if, if, I want to be irreverent. If I'm going to send you, we're going to go big. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now just think about that. Think about sent for the Jews, sent for the Gentiles. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Jake wrapped us up on the book of Ruth, and it kind of teed us up for Advent. And at the end, he connected the dots from what was going on with Ruth and her her mother-in-law, this widow, to this widow that we meet at the front door of the New Testament named Anna. And she just happens to be there when Jesus' parents bring eight-day-old baby Jesus to the temple, and she knows who he is because God shows her. But there was another guy there. It's a man named Simeon. 
And uh, he goes to the temple. And by the way, it's not like they would be the only family with a baby. It's like when you go to the DMV for renewal, it's not like you're the only driver there that day. That's where everybody goes that's getting a renewal that day or getting a new license that day. There were probably a bunch of families doing the same thing that day at the temple. But this man named Simeon looks around and the Spirit says, that family right there. And he walks over and takes the child, which I don't know if that alarmed Mary or not. But he takes this child and and says, if I may paraphrase, well, God, I can die now. Because uh, I have seen not only the Savior of your people, but the light that you've sent to the Gentiles. And hands him back. Now, what does that look like in real life? Well, most of the room that I'm looking at right now is not ethnically Jewish. You might be. But we're mostly Gentiles. And we have been brought into the plan by the only one who could bring us in. I, um, during the state of the church, I gave a little bit of recap about my trip a couple of months ago to Vietnam. Let me tell you about one moment in that trip. I taught for a week in Vietnam, mid-October. It was a group of about 40 people. And uh, never been to that part of the world, never been to Vietnam. On the front end of the week, sort of Asian reserve, sort of Asian politeness, very kind of formal. And then by midweek, the questions just started pouring out. And they start asking about everything in the Bible. I was teaching on ecclesiology. They just started asking about everything. You know, when Cain gets that mark on him and he's scared somebody's going to kill him, who, who's going to kill him? Uh, there's only so many people on the earth. And I, you know, am reeling trying to translate that into Vietnamese. This young woman came up during the break and she told the translator, uh, I want to ask him a question. So the three of us sat down. So she's right here. And here's the translator, and she opens up her Bible. It's very serious looking, and I thought, oh, crud. I don't know what she's about to ask. So long, long question in Vietnamese. I don't, I don't even know what book of the Bible she's opened. And translator explains to me that she's asking you a question from Isaiah. Uh, she's looking in Isaiah chapter 9, and she's looking at this prophecy about the Messiah. And it says that unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given... The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so she wants to know, if this is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the Son of God, God the Son, how can he be called Everlasting Father? And so I'm sitting there, and uh, I tried to answer, but it it, it, kind of gets me just even for the second time this morning remembering this that this feeling of, from her perspective, I am from the opposite side of the world. Like, from her perspective, I'm from the end of the earth. And from my perspective, she is on the end of the earth. She is on the other side of the world. And here's this woman that I've never met, and I may never meet again. And God has got all these cool things going on in her life where she is engaging the prophet Isaiah as fulfilled in Jesus in her own language. And it doesn't have any of my fingerprints on it. This is just what God is doing in her life. I hope that gives you joy. That that is happening all over the world. That the reason that we 
send money out the door that, yeah, we could put it into the building. We, we could fix up this or fix up that more quickly. Or what. We're doing that because we want people to know the servant because he came for everybody. And, and that leads to the next thing. Because I said, all right, if you said this is fulfilled in Jesus, then you make a 98. What's the other two? And it's this. When you get to the New Testament and you get to the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is where the gospel is starting to spread, what, all over the world? It's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. When you get to Acts chapter 13, and this is where the apostle Paul is still kind of a new character in the book of Acts, it says that he and a guy named Barnabas go into this city... Pisidian Antioch, and they do what they always did. They start where? With the Jews at the synagogue. And they're talking to them about how Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Some listen and some believe, but there is serious pushback in Pisidian Antioch. And guess what Paul and Barnabas say? Fine, we'll go to the Gentiles as we have been commanded, comma, And guess what they quote? Isaiah 49. In other words, they saw not themselves as being the servant, definitively, but that when they went out in his name, spoke on his behalf, and proclaimed his gospel, that they were participating in the mission of the servant, as do we. And that can mean all kinds of things. I mean, to take it it way out to the peg, is it a foregone conclusion in your mind that you, or if you're a parent, your children will never be the ones who are sent to another nation to make Christ known? Have you already decided that that is too weird and too expensive and I like having Thanksgivings and Christmases where we're all together and we're just not doing that? Or could it be that many more people from our own church family are the very ones that God has raised up to actually physically go to other nations and make Christ known? But closer to home, let me ask this, because this should be relevant to all of us. Do you have non-Christian friends? I don't mean... Are you physically in proximity to non-Christians? Like, okay, yeah, when I go shopping, they're like 10 feet away over there. I think there's non-Christians behind me at Starbucks, I think. I'm pretty sure. I mean, in, in our lives, where we, we break bread together, we talk, we include them in things. We're intentional about uh, going to them and cultivating a relationship with them, not to treat them like a project but to love them because they're made in God's image and they're our neighbors. But part of that love would involve that I want you to know this servant who came not only for me. He came for us. Does that scare you? I mean, just this past week when we had our our staff meeting, we were praying as a staff for our own timidity in evangelism. And we could all tell our stories about how I blew it over here, or I chickened out, or I just I can't bring myself to broach it. Let me end on this note. How do you broach 
the good news of the servant to anybody? Jew, Gentile, family, friend, neighbor, how do you broach it? Let, let me end one more time with the chef, Jose Andres. He was asked in this interview, um, how did you do it? <laughs> you came down here five days after the storm, no plan, no big agency behind you, and you've, you've outpaced all the aid agencies, and you've now fed over three million people. It's probably four million by now. And, and here's what he said, quote, It's a very simple thing when you're a cook. You begin cooking, and then you start feeding people. Oh, I, I think what you're seeing there is, and I, and I saw him say this in an interview, that food is just human language. And he loves food. And so it's easy for him to speak that language. So he'll make, he'll make the arrangements for people to have that thing because he enjoys it. Who are the best evangelists? Who are the best ambassadors for the servant? You know who the best ambassadors are? You know who best can press through the awkwardness and the fear and speak for him? The people who enjoy him. Who enjoys him? Bad people. Disobedient, sinful people. Like us. And man... If, if you blow it all the time and you let God down all the time, but you know that He sent His servant for me. Boy, that fourth servant song, He bore all my sins, gives me righteousness. That's when you enjoy Him. When you enjoy Him, you speak about Him. And we participate in the servant's mission. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for sending your precious Son, the one with a sword in his mouth, the one who is the polished arrow. Thank you for sending us your treasured Son, God the Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. We pray in your name. Amen.